Hi, I'm Shannon Torrance, and this is Magic is Real. Today my interview is with Peter Panagor. Peter is not only an amazing, warm, and lovely person, he also has a gift for eloquently putting into words that which most people would agree is a wordless concept. The events that led to Peter's first near-death experience are incredible on their own, but the insights and the wisdom that he returned with are simply astounding. And I know that they're going to bring a lot of people a lot of hope. Thank you so much for watching, and here's my conversation with Peter This is Shannon Torrance, and you're watching Magic is Real. Today, my guest is Peter Panagor. I have just gotten halfway through his book, actually more than halfway today. Um, he has written a beautiful book, and I'm, I'm not just saying that. It's beautifully written. Um, it is called Heaven is Beautiful. Um, this is a book about his near-death experiences. He's had two of them. Uh, Peter has also written a book called Two Minutes for God. He has a Master of Divinity from Yale, He's a speaker, a writer. Um, he hosts different Zoom events. Um, I'll let him tell you all about the wonderful things he does, but just wanted to mention a few of them. Peter, welcome, and thank you for being here. Thanks, Shannon. I'm really, really glad to be here. Thanks. Great. Well, um, I would like to start not from uh, this book is so good. Um, it's obviously your story. It's so fascinating and interesting, but I would like to start with who you are. Obviously, you're a human and a soul. And if that weren't awesome enough, you've also had these great experiences. But I'd love to know about who you are, what your background is, what you're comfortable sharing in terms of what your previous spiritual um, paradigm was, um, even as far back as childhood. I think I remember you saying something about a spiritual experience when you were younger. Where, what was your religious background and that sort of thing? What, how did you see yourself in the world? I was raised in a religious family, uh, but not uh, obsessively religious, but it's going to sound like they were because I was raised in two churches. My dad was Greek Orthodox and my mom was Roman Catholic. And I um, attended both as I got older uh, because I was the older Greek son it was patriarchal in the culture and so i was the boy who went to church with the dad uh, and so my sisters not so much but we were all went to catholic church so we were nominally catholic and orthodox all that kind of thing but my spiritual life really began when i was five or six years old and i had an angelic experience uh, where uh, i was raptured into heaven and told that i belonged to god and would work for god and that's a very brief way of saying uh, and using using concrete language that i'm sure creates images in the viewer's mind uh, but i can tell you that that i have a hard time talking about it and describing it just like it's it, just like all the rest of heaven every everything i would say about it is 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 metaphor and so it was an experience where I was in my body and out of my body at the same time. The, the angel, this, in, this intelligence that was powerful was inside of me and surrounding me and, and outside of me. And it pulled me up into the divine presence. And that was like this long elastic band in the divine presence on one end and in my body on the other. And I could see my body and I could see myself from the outside in heaven, in the divine presence. It's, it was kind of, I was just a little kid. But when I, when I was there, I had no brain 
and it was it i understood that i belonged to god this god was my and i use the word god which um as shorthand for me it's not the old white man and the beard in heaven it's 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 the divine self that has no form and is ineffable um, and so i'm in the presence of this divine form that's ineffable and and speaks through this angelic form to me in in the voice that's inside my body and outside my body and says to me i belong you belong to me and you will work for me and and i and when it was over I, I ran in the house and i told my mom and my mom decided i would be a catholic priest i was like five years old oh you're gonna be a priest you'll be a priest and I'm like uh, I don't know. I just know that I belong to God. And so then, you know, shortly thereafter, another year later, I had another experience, but this time was with a, an elephant, a little baby elephant that um, I now have summarized. It was Ganesh. And so that's not very Christian. Um, and so, uh, but it was full of wisdom and, and, and intelligence and beauty and had me, I glimpsed eternity and it scared, it frightened me. The size of eternity frightened me. Infinity was too big for my little self. And uh, after that, I'm being very, very cryptic and very, um, brief about these experiences that I hopefully will be coming out um, in another year in another book. But when I was in high school, I took uh, three hits of purple microdot mescaline, which is an ethnogen. And I did not, I took too much and I did not expect what happened, but I was in the divine, it, it opened me up to the divine presence again. And I had this reawakening of uh, the pervasiveness of God inside of all living matter. And, and shortly after that, that same year, my senior year of high school, I, my religion, I went to Catholic high school, all boys Catholic high schools. Uh, uh, I was a, a jock prep school. And so uh, it, in our, we took a religion class every year, we read a gospel. And so my senior year, it's it, we're we're waiting to graduate and my, religion teacher went on a retreat to a local monastery. And when he came back on this Monday, uh, he suddenly surprised us by pulling down all the shades and wanting to teach us meditation. And he had gone on this retreat at an abbey called St. Joseph's Abbey, where the monks for a period of time had been studying Theravada Buddhism with a, a Buddhist group in central Massachusetts, kind of doing this monastic exchange. and. Uh, reinvigorating their practice of prayer. And they came up with this thing called contemplative meditation. And that's what he taught us. It has later been rebranded. They rebranded it as centering prayer. But at the time when I learned it, it was called contemplative meditation. It was just a, a repetition of uh, a prayer word, uh, riding on your breath, like uh, I describe it as a butterfly in your palm riding gently, not grasping. And whenever your mind wanders, you go back to your word and you aim your heart at the divine. And so because of these previous experiences and because I had had a reawakening recently uh, that I described a minute ago, I took the meditation right away. So in 77, I began my meditation practice and I stuck with it. So by the, by the time 81 rolled around, uh, I'd already been meditating 
on a daily basis because I found that that by diving inside myself, I could create a space of peace inside myself that I could then carry with me through the day. Uh, and so it changed my life. Uh, meditation changed my life. And then dying, well, <laughs> when I came back from my death experience and I looked back on that mescaline experience, I thought the comparison was like, I'd, I'd gone to the greatest beach in the world that was endless sand and the mescaline experience was like a thimble full of sand. Just like right. so, so supercharged and powerful um, was dying, which I wouldn't recommend to people, by the way. It, it leaves you, it, the, at least for me, okay? I can only talk for myself, but my experience of coming back was very difficult. Um, it, it's, there's, there's something to be said for n being prepared for that kind of thing. Yeah. not being radically changed, not being, not being radically changed. Um, there's something to be said for being a normal person in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And I have two, two thoughts. One is, I think it's interesting that you took mescaline and had this spiritual experience because so often we make fun of stoners or whatever that are like, dude, the, the universe is so vast and we make fun of them. And it's sort of like, as a culture, I mean, and it's, it's yeah, this yeah. idea of, um, oh, you know, they're just, they're kind of dumb and they're stoners, but it's kind of, isn't that funny that what if they truly are seeing into the, you know, getting a little glimpse of that, um, you know, when they're doing, when they're doing that sort of like a DMT sort of experience and really they are seeing into it and really they're wiser than all of us. So um, I think that's really interesting. Um, and also I think it's interesting that for whatever reason it was your, it seems to have been your soul's path that you were to die and to come back. It, it does. It, it does. And I, I want to, I want to toss in here and say that there's been a 10 year study at John Hopkins university uh, using clergy people there's been a clergy study at John Hopkins, rabbis and imams and uh, reverends who've never had mystical experiences, and they've been giving them heroic doses of psilocybin, and they have discovered, and along with other things, people have probably been hearing about the, the uses of uh, psychedelics with post-traumatic stress disorder and depression and all these applications. Well, in another study, the science is showing that the end of duality in a transcendental experience with lasting after effects similar to near-death experience, similar to, but not the same as, every mystical experience gives after effects, um, that there is something to be said for this. Yeah. That, that's been, that's one I've thing. I've looked a lot, I've watched a lot of ayahuasca doc documentaries and interviews and things like that, and I'm fascinated by it, you know, wondering, is it, are we, I believe that it's possible that we are seeing into that other dimension, but then you know, sometimes you wonder like, or is it, or what does that really say? If the brain can be altered by a chemical, is it in our brain? I mean, it really- Well, here's the thing. I just finished uh, Dr. Bruce Grayson's book oh, yeah. after. Mm -hmm. I just, and he has, a, he talks a little bit about this. Okay. And what he says is that um, MRI studies show that the brain on psychedelics has less activity, not more. Oh, interesting. So it sort of dampens the brain down, which is, he, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think what he said was that that 
that's an interesting thing. If it dampens the brain down, does that free the brain, free the mind from the brain? Yeah. I mean, I know that's a whole other topic, but it, you know, it, totally in my college but, years, I have, you know, I experimented with psychedelics as well. And, um, sure. remem and remember thinking as I was watching a Bob Marley poster come to life, I was watching mm. it and I knew I was like, that's just a, that's just a poster. And I wasn't hallucinating to the point of thinking I was somewhere else. It was like, how is it that all the lions underneath him are starting to prowl? And he actually went and picked up the microphone in the, in the poster and literally started singing and mouthing the words. And I'm watching it happen going, how is my brain doing that? Because there's no, it's not even, it's so clear. It's more clear than yeah. anything around me. And so I'm, fascinated by that topic, which I know is a whole tangent, but I also think it's really interesting, you know, to hear Bruce Grayson say, say it and you say it too. Um, I think I want to explore that so much more as well. So, but back um, to the subject we were, I, yeah. Um, but I, so, okay. So obviously you've had two near death experiences. So let's talk about the first one because it's not just fascinating that you had this near death experience and what happened when you left your body. It's the story about what happened is I would, like I said, I was at the edge of my seat reading it because it's actually yeah. an adventure, which is why I don't expect you to give us all the details. Cause I want everyone to read the book. Um, but I think in a nutshell in itself, it's actually a really interesting story of survival and the human resiliency. Yeah. You almost make me cry. Cause it's still, uh, I, you know, I thought I, in 2016, I went back there and I, and, and I caught kind of, uh, had a cathartic experience when I dealt with a lot of my trauma from that night. Um, but basically what happened to me is I died of ice, hypothermia. I froze to death in a very difficult situation high in the mountains in Western Canada in the winter. And uh, I made a mistake and it uh, cascaded. It's okay. You know, it's the, I hate to use this. I've never, I've never used this, the snowball effect mm -hmm. because I've, I don't know why I've never used that probably because it's a cool, it's cool realism. It's, but, but that's what happened. Yeah. I, I made one mistake that cascaded into a disaster. Um, and the, the desire, the, the drive for survival, that's really, that, that was the thing that, that was most apparent to me all besides the fact that every part of me hurt. Um, cause I was, I was literally, my body was literally freezing. Um, the, was that I had this, I found inside myself this, this uh, capacity, this thing that was deep inside me to stay alive. It was the, this driving force that was sort of living inside of me that I didn't know was there and that I, that I had access to it with my willpower. And, and the, 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 the situation was that we believed we were going, we had good reason to believe we were going to die that night and we're not going to get out of the situation we were in. Uh, but we were going to die trying to get out of that situation. And it was awful. I, 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 for years, the early, the early videos that I made um, quite a number of years ago now, whenever I told this story in front of an audience, I cried. I just couldn't help it. Because not because not because I died, but because there was just so much trauma around that night for me, and it, and it wasn't until 
2016 when I went back there that were the, the the spot I could see the spot where I died it's very you know like I can see where it is I, and um and it and it changed for me by going back there and um I, I performed a little ritual um that uh, that involved screaming <laughs> screaming a lot and uh uh, the what used to be a dark space for me became a doorway back in from the light, and so I I had this I had a healing, um, so now I'm in a better place with what happened that night. But that night, uh, I got I, I so all week long. This is so I'm I'm this is 40 years ago. All week long, my big toe, which got the brunt of it. Um, and my, but my big toe in particular, it, it, it's suddenly really not really halfway through my toe. I can't really feel it. Mostly I could not feel mo the bottom of my toe, but now I'm like, okay, huh, that's, that's, I still have physical, I still have physical problems from that night. Um, it was such a terrible thing. So I'm not, I, I, I guess I could tell, I could tell people that we were ice climbing. And it was my first climb. And I was a rock climber and a mountaineer and a backpacker. And I'd been on the National Ski Patrol. I'd been, we'd gone snow caving for a week. I, I was not a, a, an inexperienced mountaineer. I was an experienced mountaineer. I'd been all my, since I was 12 years old in the wilderness. And, but I made a mistake. And the, we got to the top of the climb at sunset. And the temperature dropped 30 degrees within uh, a heartbeat and hypothermia set in immediately. And we didn't have gear to spend the night. And we immediately knew that death was stalking us because it was, you know, you can't go down. We, you can't, we were stuck. We had to fight our way down the mountain. You can't walk down the path. There was no path down. It was a sheer cliff. Uh, so we, and in the dark, we had to fight our way down in the dark um, and keep our heads at the same time. No panicking because panic will kill you. And so when we, we, death was like right on my shoulder the whole time and we fought our way down rappel by rappel and terrible things happened and our brains got colder and colder and we began to make less good decisions um and by the time we reached the last rappel sometime before dawn hours before dawn i don't know because i didn't have a watch on and we were we were on the last rappel and the rope got jammed and i couldn't get it free and i that's where i died because i couldn't get the rope free and in the last few minutes I, I went through the last stages of hypothermia where I began to get hot. That's like third to last. And I unzipped my coat. And I, and, and I mentioned before I was on the ski patrol and I'd been a first responder, a wilderness first responder. And I know better. I knew better than to unzip my coat, but I didn't care. Um, and so I was making irrational decisions and I unzipped my coat, which was just a thin shell anyway. Um, but it, rap it more rapidly increased my death. It felt like all the blood had rushed from my extremities to my core. And I remember thinking, 
oh, I, 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 can afford, I can afford to lose a hand. I can afford to lose an arm. I can live if I lose an arm. And I'm so hot. So I unzipped my coat. And then I began falling asleep. Um, and I would collapse and stand up and fall asleep and collapse and stand up. And, and then I stood up this last time. And as I stood up this last time, I got tunnel vision. And I, I should stop and say that by this point, I knew my situation was dire and I, I was relaxed. I, my drive for survival, I'd given in. I hadn't, I, I, I didn't quit like fearfully. I just kind of, okay, I guess this is where I'm going to die. And I remember thinking there was this movie around that time called Little Big Man and, and with Dustin Hoffman. And um, there was a, the, the chief of the tribe where Little Big Man lived would often come out of his tent in the morning and say, it's a good day to die. And I remember thinking, it's a good day to die. Today's my, it's a good day to die. It's beautiful here. Um, I can't, the moon had come up. I could see some distance now. And, and I was sad for my family. And um, I started thinking about the divine and, and realizing there was nothing I could do about it. And so then, you know, the coat and the sleeping, and then I'm to I, I get, start to get tunnel vision where there's a big black circle around around my vision that rapidly shrinks, like fade to black. And I watched, I watched this crazy thing happen where my vision got narrower and narrower and narrower and just went out. And when it went out, I was surprised to discover I was still conscious. I thought, because recently I'd been unconscious. I would fall asleep and I'd go into, you know, sleep, unconsciousness but I was totally conscious and I no longer could feel myself standing. And I knew I hadn't fallen, like collapsed and fallen asleep. And so I was confused about what was going on. And my vision became expansive and I could see into a, a great darkness that, that, that was wide and deep and far, far, far in the distance, like the most distant star on a pitch black night, one star, and it popped into existence and it rushed toward me and expanded and filled the, the space between me and it um, faster than the speed of light, faster than thought. It just, from this incredibly great distance, was suddenly in front of me and communicating to me directly into my being telepathically, I'm taking you. And I didn't want to go and I didn't know what was going on. And so I tried to use my willpower to stop. No, no, you're not. And yes, yes, I am. And just pulled me out of myself. I was completely powerless. And I had this great sense of the greatness of this entity, that this entity was intelligence and, 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 and was the was the, the same, and after the fact, I can look back and think, I know this is the same angel that took me the first time, but at the, when I was dying, I was so overwhelmed by what was coming toward me that I just refused to connect the two experiences. But once I was taken, I was enwrapped in intelligence and compassion and love and contentment and I was, and I was like a rag doll being carried. I had no power at all.
I could, I was just being carried. I couldn't change anything. I could just rest inside. And so I rested inside and I was carried rapidly. And I, it's, it's, I'm still in this great expanse. And it's not like a, it's not people describe they go into this narrow tunnel, but it was like the angel was the narrow, narrow tunnel. I, I can't, it's, it's like, but, but I was still in the midst of this great expanse. It was this sort of this containment narrowing and great expanse at the same time. And I was carried this incredible distance and it, at the speed of thought, I guess. And for lack of another way of talking about it. And I, and I, I, I should stop and say that all language about the divine is metaphor. It has been metaphor. It always will be metaphor, simile, metaphor, allegory, mythology. Um, myth rather um, and negation those are kind of the that's kind of the tool set of mystics globally and forever in poetry um, and so everything I say is all kind of mixed in with that kind of language so I got carried great distance in comfort intent and either this entity, this angel, this intelligence, which is all powerful and all intelligent, either it deposited me, it's sort of like through a barrier into another darkness, a greater darkness, or it became that darkness. I'm not really sure um, whether it expanded itself into the infinite itself I, or, or it melded into it. It's, it's all this paradox and, and the gray areas of it was this thing and it was that thing. And these two things aren't supposed to exist in the same space, but they do. And so I'm, I'm, I'm in the midst of this infinite darkness uh, that I can see in. So it's, it's, it's pitch dark, but yet it's not dark like the room you're in when you shut the windows and the curtains and you shut off the lights on, on the outside and on the inside and you can't see your hand. I could, I, if I had a hand, I could have seen it even though it was dark, um, but I didn't have a hand because I didn't have a body. And I was, I could see myself from the inside as an orb of consciousness. And I say an orb, but it's a, I, maybe I was uh, oblong shaped. I don't know. I was just a sort of a, I was, my thinking was my being, was myself was my sensory perception. And so I could see this darkness, but also I could see in every direction at once. And I was content with myself remembering this is who I am. You keep, you keep rattling on here if you want me to, no, Shane. I'm absorbing that. I, I, I've heard this from so many near-death experiencers too that you did put into words so beautifully because from what I understand, it's not, it's so far beyond anything that we can comprehend here because here we have outlines and borders and boundaries and time and all these things, bodies. So we're kept into little containers uh, of time and of physical form and, and atoms and molecules. And on the other side, everything is everything else and there is no time and everything is one and you are me and I am you. And that's, a, and it's, it makes perfect sense even though it's so hard to comprehend. So I really appreciate your description of it. Um, and it just, it just made me remember that, um, first of all, as you were describing that, that struggle for survival, the whole time I'm listening to your book, I'm going, I would have just been like, forget it, I'm, I'm out. But I think when you're in that circumstance, you find a strength that you didn't even know you had. Because I, I just keep thinking, no, it's too much. I would have just given up. But I just had a 
of remembering of um, probably like 10 years ago, I, I had endometriosis. I was in a lot of pain. I, I, used, I took ibuprofen and then I took an Aleve together, um, which I didn't know you're not supposed to do. And that's all it was. I had I, bad pain. I was you know, shaking from pain. So I said, I, I've got to take one, but I have to go to work. So I took them both. And I got up to, tr- to go to the sink. And all of a sudden, the what you described, I mean, I didn't go, I didn't fully cross over, but I, what you described sounds exactly what I saw. It was like, it wasn't the tunnel. It was it, that blackness that I was standing there and just all of a sudden, everything went numb. Like I started to tingle. And I started, I, it was like this light, it was, it was like a darkness enveloped me, but it wasn't scary. It was just sort of like this, like, like you said in your book, nothingness, you said it's no thing. It's like- No thing. No thing. And, and it just kind of like, and I literally, my thought wasn't, oh my God, my thought was, oh, well, I guess I'm dying. I just remember yeah. thinking, I was so chill about it. I'm like, I guess this is how I die. I, there was no fear at all. And then it, then I threw up. And so that kind of aborted the whole thing, which is great. Um, but looking it's, back, I'm like, that's, I think I really was dying. On your way. I was for a second. Cause I really remember, I felt like I was going like this, like, like life was just sort of like, I was falling away from it, but it was a total sense of peace. Like, all right, I'm, I'm going. Um, so th- that's beautiful. Um, yeah. And is there anything, um, well, I guess, you know, there's also how you came back into your body, but um, I just hadn't, did, hadn't wanted to interrupt your beautiful description. Um, what, what was sort of the next thing you would say happened if you can put it into a next well, thing or, you know, what happened next for you? When I had a, I put it in a sequence because I have to, to talk about it, but yeah. it's all at once. Everything happens at once. And I I was in nothingness. That's the, the, you mentioned that word. And I want to bring, come back to that word for a second, because I was no thing and there were no things there. There was nothing there. And because, so people ask, well, what was it like? Well, how do you describe no thing? Everything is the thing. Everything in the world is the thing. Everything's got a name. Everything's got a definition. Um, and, but there are no things there and no language, no nothing, but it's not an emptiness. It's a fullness, it's paradox. And so I, a, a portal opened, a doorway, a gateway, whatever you want, and it was gigantic, um, bigger than me. And I could see through the doorway, but the doorway was translucent and transparent and um, solid. It, it had this it had this flow to it and i could see the flow and i could see into the flow and i could see through the flow um and and i could just see that it was all these things all at once and there was a a, a much longer tunnel on the inside another tunnel that went into infinity and i was i, I was attracted to this because it was this um like a pearlescence a luminous flow and so I wanted this thing. It was so attractive. And I went to it and I touched it with my being, unafraid, wondering, but unafraid. And as soon as I touched it, it inflowed into me. And then all these things happened at once. Uh, I, I saw myself uh, as, a, as a creature. I heard, I heard a voice speak inside me that had no sound. 
and no no words and i was surrounded on and and, and enveloped i was in in the ocean and the ocean itself at the same time a portion of it and yet the bigger part surrounded me and and i saw my creation i saw the origin of my soul self i saw the length of my my soul life I saw other lives I had lived. I understood that I had been fully known forever and ever, and that nothing about me was unknown, and that that I was beloved, and I and that I went through a I went through a hell of my own making. I went through a judgment of myself. I judged myself. I went I, my life my life review was to go through all of the pain I gave away to everyone in my life and experience it from their perspective, like I was in their body, feeling their feelings, looking at me doing this nasty thing to them. And, and also in my body at the same time, witnessing from my side, all of the things I had forgotten that I had done to them, and all of my reasoning for the for doing whatever it was in a sequence of events, all, every, every, every bad thing I ever did, all in a sequence of events, uh, times, uh, 10,000 times every bit of pain that it gave away was magnified from their point of view when I was in them and I judged myself as guilty for having caused so much pain because I was also being infilled with beauty. So there was so much beauty and love. My comparison wasn't to my comparison of my action was a set against the voice that was speaking inside me saying, I love you. I know you. I've always known you. You're my beloved. And so I, 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 and then I, I saw all of the love that I had given away in my life. I still had, and all the love that had been given to me, I still had. And I saw all of humanity's sins, the, the bad karma that they, was not their fault. That he, including me, we didn't create the matrix in which we live. We are we are creatures as part of creation, and everything everything that lives hurts something else. Everything that lives consumes something else, and that consumption extends to the wounding of others. And even though I was guilty, I judged myself guilty for having caused pain out of my own egoistic desires it was i didn't build the structure and i was still the beloved child and i was being told i and so i saw this this equality of all humanity i saw an equality of of all of our brokenness uh, it, uh that there was no no one person's action was more harmful or hurtful than any other person's action in comparison to infinite love so it may be on a human scale, uh, there's, a, there's a, a, a painful action number one, and then there's, you know, the, at, the, at the maximum, there's a 10. But when the, the maximum of love is a gazillion, bazillion, trillion, it makes the 10 nothing in comparison. That's and so the, the best thing I've ever heard about that concept, the way, just the way that you explained that just was like a light bulb. Keep going. I just wanted to say that that was... That, that makes so much sense. So, so as long as I was judging myself against myself, I was in a fiery hell of my own making. But as soon as, as, soon as I turned toward the love, 
as soon as I listened, as soon as I listened to the voice speaking inside me, I love you, I know you, you're, I, I forgive you, I love you. As soon as I listened to that voice with the ear of my soul, I was infilled with healing and wholeness, forgiveness, beauty, mercy, joy, knowledge, understanding, bliss, paradise, wellness, awe, adoration, peace, beauty, all these things as one thing um, that we, you know, in, in our lives, we, there are all these separate things, but they're one thing. And all of it just infilled me to this place where if more of it had filled me, I would have obliterated. And, and I said, am I dead? And the voice said, yes, you're dead. And I said, but I haven't, you know, gone to tunnel yet. I haven't gone all the way yet. And the voice said, no, you haven't gone all the way yet, but I want you to come. It's time for you to come. And I said, but I got, I, you know, my parents, I, I, I want to come, but I've got something going on on earth with my parents suffering. And, um, and in an instant I was, I was carried across with the, at the speed of thought again, to the edge of the, of heaven where the our universe is created so it's not like not like the big bang i'm talking about here but i'm talking about the 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 divine presence that is inside of all things and so i was uh, i was at the very edge of heaven and the in the edge of the universe and was enveloped in love looking down on earth and i could see like a hologram of earth and all the seven billion people everybody all at once not like there's joe and there's mary and you know i, I you know ahmed is over there it's more like i could see everybody all at once at supervision and i could see everything that they were doing and i could see that they were covered in a veil and i could see that they could not see what i could see I, they could not see the divine love and as i watched this the divine love expanded into was is and, and always will be infinite love like love, like just that I had always been measured by this love that created me that is inexplicably infinite. And, and the voice said to me, in the way that I love you now, I have always loved you, was, is, and always. And I love every single person just like you. You are all, using Christian language again, you are all the prodigal child. You are all the one I love, most in particular, every 7 billion of us. And that when they die, when everyone dies, they will see what you see. And I saw my parents' faces in particular, and I saw their, like, I could see their accumulation of suffering. I could see their current suffering. I could see their future suffering without me. And I could see their future suffering with me, living. And I was told that I should stay because in, a, in the wink of an eye, I could see that the length of my human life was the wink of an eye and that in a wink of an eye, my parents would be dead and would be joining me in bliss and paradise and all would be well. But I also knew that in their temporal world, that it was going to seem like an eternity to them and that they would continue. They would have, would have lost two kids. Um, my sister had vanished, um, run away. And, but it, my family interpreted, lived, lived that out as a mourning for someone 
who is gone from you as if a death. Um, and so I said, but do I have to stay here? And the voice said, no, you don't have to stay here. I said, if I, if I go back to life, can I come back here to this, this infinite love? And the voice said, yes, but I want you to stay. I said, well, then I choose to live my life. And the voice said, you won't live your life and, and sent me back. And on my way, it showed me a million different entry points into my life again. And in the center of this million different points, like a circle, was a, a pure beam of white light. And the, that it, it radiated out into, into fading darkness, but there was no darkness. It was just less light to the very edges of all these individual entry points. So there was a million entry points in this one circle. This is all metaphor. Um, and I had to choose, the voice says to me, choose, like choose one of these paths. And so I, I like, I want to be a writer. I want to be a creative. I want to live bohemian. I want to, and, and like in an instant, I had a path and it was not into the center where I felt like the, the divine wanted me to go, but gave me the choice to do what I wanted to do. And so I went off, not to quite to the center, but to the, to the side of the center in the light, but not in the intensity of it. And the next thing I knew, I was, I felt like I'd been, I was being crushed down because I was 10,000 times bigger. And I was being like a compact and, and I felt like I was being screwed back into my body again, like ugh, painfully screwed back in. And, and I was inside this very small, like, like in, you know, Aladdin, uh, you know, itty bitty bottle. I was like in this itty bitty thing so much smaller and full of pain and the first my first rise to consciousness was suffering i was just racked with pain because i i'd forgotten suffering i'd also once at once i was filled with bliss there was no more suffering all suffering had ended and so i i i got i i, I got upset when i finally within a couple of days of this i realized that i didn't realize the deal that i had made that I was going to be having to live back inside the suffering again, which, you know, maybe if I, but I couldn't remember suffering. So I don't know. And I've heard, you know, I've heard that from other people too. In fact, my last guest police described it the same way. It's yeah, you're being squeezed back into this tiny little vessel when you're so expansive. And that's, you know, I feel like even if you didn't have the, the, the physical pain that you have when you have hypothermia, I think even the littlest pain would seem enormous after what you just went through. And after that feeling of total freedom from anything physical that, you know, you could have a scratch and it would still feel big. Um, but obviously you were in rough shape. And again, I want readers to, um, you know, read how you kind of were saved and got back to safety, which is really, again, just the when I'm reading the book, I'm going, oh my gosh, they, Oh, finally, it's like, you know, I'm really rooting for you to get, just get, get him back, get him back to civilization and get him into a, a blanket. Um, but I know that that's really difficult um, after, after feeling what you felt and hearing what you heard. But what really struck me too, when I was listening to the book today was were two things. When you talk about the life review, as some call it, that that was your hell. 
And that, and I've had this conversation a lot lately with people because so many people have different ideas about what, you know, I don't personally believe in hell. I believe in different states of consciousness and um, vibration levels. So, um, and that you kind of make your own hell and your own reality. Um, and I also, but I also loved what you, what you kind of heard there too, was that in your life review, you see all the quote unquote bad things you did. Um, whereas on the other side, there's not as much of a judgment on what's good or bad. It just is. God didn't judge me. No. And it's, it's, um, it's just the way humans are. We're fallible. That's why we come here to learn. So if we, we wouldn't be sent here if we weren't meant to make mistakes and, and learn from our mistakes. So, um, I think it's hard for us to comprehend as human beings because we all have anyone with a conscience who's not a sociopath or has any kind of, you know, inability to feel that we feel guilt. We're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I, I wish I hadn't done that. And sometimes it doesn't even occur to us how we might've hurt somebody without realizing it or not even realized how much we hurt them. Like maybe we broke up with someone and we were kind of ca- just like, eh, we didn't realize they cared so much. Um, so I just would love to hear you kind of your response to that. It's not a question as much as just a discussion point that I think mm-hmm. it's really incredible that as human beings, we can't imagine, well, how could we be shown these things, but not judged for them? You know, it's not a judgment. It's just a look at it. Look at it. This is what you did. Mm-hmm. This is what you did. And I, I, the other language I used to describe it comes from uh, Catherine of Genoa in the 1500s. She describes her mystical experience, not a near-death experience, but a mystical experience. Near-death experience is a type of mystical experience, but um, she didn't die to have hers. She describes it as the purgative fire of divine love. I was cleansed by this. I was cleansed by this of things that I could not bring with me. I imagine, I wonder if I had clung to them, whether I would have gone on. But I could, but it was so self-evident. The divine was self-evident. It wasn't like I had to force myself to turn toward the love. It was self-evidently love. And what else could I do? I was overwhelmed by its beauty. And so I was cleansed. I was, I was, I was released from these chains that I had forged for myself to steal from Charles Dickens. Um, the, you know, Christmas Carol, I, I had created this and that I didn't need it anymore. I left it behind. It had to be removed from me and, and I was given the opportunity to remove it. And, and I was freed from it. And I expect, okay, so I, I expect that my next trip, maybe three times a charm for me, maybe I get to stay next time, um, is that I might have to go through that again. You know, I've, I've lived a human life since then. And I've hurt people since then. And if that's what it takes for me to enter into bliss, I'm in. Yeah. Yeah. Count on me. When I hear about other people's life reviews, it kind of makes me go, oh, no, I already know what I'm going to see. But then I realize it's okay, though. You've already done the work to forgiveness, you know, forgiving yourself, making amends wherever you can. I've done that process and I try to be very aware. But there's still that human part of me that's like nervous to see it again. Cause I'm like, I've already worked through it. Do I have to see it again? But I know that that's all part of it. It and is. And it's much more in detail. Yeah. And you're not feeling bad when you're watching it. Right. It's where were you? I felt, I felt pain. I didn't feel that, badly. I felt pain. I felt the other person's pain. Yeah. I felt their emotions. I felt their emotional pain 
times 10,000. That was overwhelming to me, yeah. which produced inside of me. So I had this dual experience. These two things were going on at once. I witnessed all of my reasons for causing their pain. And not just my reasons, but my, my emotional state, mm -hmm. what I was feeling to cause their pain. But their pain was so much bigger than anything I felt. Yeah. And, and it was obvious to me that it was all unnecessary. That's the thing of it, is that I didn't have to hurt a single person. But it was easy to see that in heaven. It's much harder to see it here. Yeah. Uh, so I, I forgive. So I live my life differently. Um, um, since that day, I live my life differently. I know that I hurt people. Um, that's just what it is to be a human being. I don't do it intentionally, um, but but sometimes it just happens. Um, you make a mistake, uh, or uh, or you get angry, or whatever it is going on. Because I'm still a very much a human being. Um, but I I live I, I live aiming my heart at compassion and kindness and peace so that I can be a channel of that into my own life. So I cause as little damage as I possibly can. Because I, I, you know, there's this, this uh, story from the third century in Egypt from the, the desert fathers. There was a contemplative movement in the third century in Christianity outside of Egypt. And there was a bunch of monasteries in the desert. And then there's a story of this monk who would come into the city every day and everybody venerated this guy because he was like the holy man. And one day he shows up and he's got a sack of sand on his shoulder and he cuts a little hole in it. And he spends his whole day walking all over the city, not talking to anybody, walking all over the city till he had this huge crowd following him, wondering what the monk is doing. And finally, when the bag is empty at, at sunset, he finally turns to them and someone says, what were you doing all day, you crazy old man? And he said, those are, those are my sins pouring out behind me. I, I, me, the holy man, me, the holy man, have my sins pouring out behind me. And so I, I live my life knowing that I cause pain everywhere I go. I expect to go back through uh, in uh, in biblical language, the fire, you know, in Eden, in the mythology, in the mythology of Genesis, God puts a cherubim, a cherub at the gate of Eden with a flaming sword to keep everybody out. I expect to go back through the flaming sword again, and I expect to be cleansed by it. And I expect to be, I was told, I was promised that I will be in the divine presence again. And so that that my beloved, I came back, I came back with a beloved. I have a beloved. I only have one beloved, and that's the divine. That is the holy of the holies, the, the source of all being, the, the luminous pearlescence, the, the energy of all there is, the all in all, the isness, whatever you want to call it, that's my beloved. And my heart, as long as I aim my heart and my life toward that, I'm okay. No matter what happens, I'm okay. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you is basically how how you live differently now. But I would also like to hear about, you know, few people have near-death experiences one time, much less two times. So can you take us to the second time? Um, sure. How many years later was this approximately? I know it was... 2015. That's and the right. first one was 2000, uh, pardon me, the first one was 1980. And I came back from the 1980, like most near-death, probably all near-death experiences, unafraid of dying, unafraid of death, zero fear of death, nothing, not afraid at all. And so I would tell, once I came out of the near-death closet, 
I couldn't shut up about it. But I kept my mouth shut for 20 years, but um, sewed my lips shut. But once I was out, I just started saying, you yeah, know, I'm just not afraid of death. I'm not afraid of dying. And then, so 2015 rolls around and I'm living where I live. Um, short story is I was gonna go sailing, solo sailing, and you had a sailboat at the time and I was gonna go down out and I live on the ocean. And so I was gonna go sailing, but the fog rolled in, thick fog. And I was like, I'm not going sailing. So I, I, I'd go to yoga class. So I, I'm a yogi, I've been a yogi for 40 years. And so I go to yoga class, I get there late because I'm, you know, I was going to go sailing and I show up and the place is summertime and close to Maine. And so there's a lot of vacationers and summer people and there's really no room for me in the studio. But the teacher's a friend of mine and she sets me up in the doorway. So she opens the door and I'm actually in the hallway looking into the room with my mat sticking six inches into the room. And she, everybody's doing hot yoga. So, and it's a hot summer's day and she's got the heat on and it's, a, it's hot in there. And I'm not a big fan of, I'm not a big fan of hot yoga because when I practice yoga, my prana rises anyway. So I get, I get hot just by my practice in a cold room. So I was in downward dog, which is two minutes into practice. And I thought, God, I'm really, really, really hot. Why am I sweating so much? Oh, and I should say that I ran 5K the day before. So I, I'm like, I'm a runner, I'm a, I'm a cyclist, I'm like into fitness, partly because of my near-death experience. I decided to have as much fun as I possibly could while I'm alive. I'm going to use this body up. So um, I'm really hot, I'm really sweaty, I, I don't feel well, so I lay down on my mat and I'm sweating and sweating and sweating and I'm lying there and I think, body inventory, wow, my heart hurts. I'm having a heart attack. This is, I have a, so I have a family thing. There's a congenital thing in my family. Killed my grandfather, would have killed my father, but they life lighted him and shot him up with a, at then, uh, uh, an experimental decoagulant. Um, and it did eventually, a sister who ran away, ran away, she died now seven years ago of all the same thing. So a couple years before me. And um, so I was like, oh my God, I don't, maybe this is a minor thing and I'll just go outside and not bother all these people. So I go outside, I walk outside, I lie down and I'm lying in the grass and I'm thinking, this is getting worse. I should get up and go to the urgent care center. So I go to sit up and I can't sit up and it hurts too much. And so I lay down and I'm like, today's the day today i get to go home i get i've been i've been praying i've been, i prayed every day to go home dear god take me home today or is my job done yet can i go can i get out of here whatever the prayer was i'm always like get me out of here and um today was my day and so i was like kind of happy about it but i had kids i have two kids and a new granddaughter and i'm married and um and time goes by and out walks the, the yoga teacher, who's a friend of mine. And she says, Peter, are you okay? And I'm like, no, Romy, I'm, uh, I'm dying. I'm having a heart attack. She said, no, you are not. You know, you're like super fit. And I said, no, Romy, I'm having a heart attack. And um, I've been out and now it's probably 20 minutes into my heart attack. Uh, and you only get an hour. And so... Um, I convince her that I'm having this problem and 
Um, she said, call the ambulance. I'm like, no, nah, the ambulance is three miles away. I'm, I don't think I'm going to make, you know, they're going to have to get to the ambulance and then they're going to have to get here. And I don't think it's, and then they're going to drive me up river 30 minutes to the hospital because we only have an urgent care center where we live and, and they can't transport to the urgent care center. So I'm like, get a friend of mine who's in this class. And, and she comes out and I convince her, take me five minutes to convince her that I'm dying. She, she's not quite you're that so bad. casual about it. Everyone, well, I'm like, like, you're just like, I'm dying. And everyone's like, get out of here. I'm here. You're not, you're not. And I'm like, no, you're not. And, um, but they all, they, they all know. Them. And by this point, everybody, my book hadn't come out yet. My book, my book hadn't come out yet, but my dearer friends knew, know that I'm a near death experiencer, but they don't have any idea what that means really. And so I get transported to the urgent care center with this friend of mine in the car and I call ahead to the doc and I live in a small town and I know everybody. So I get to the, the, I get there and the doc's like, before we get you out of the car, let's see how you are. Maybe you're not having a heart attack. I'm like, no, trust me, this is, this is serious. I'm now 30 or 40 minutes into this. Um, I need you now. And so they, they bring me in and all, I know all the nurses, uh, they, some of them had been, they Half the nurses or three quarters of the nurses had been, I was a congregational minister. They'd all been members of the church and I was hiding out in the church. I need to tell you the congregation, the congregation, I need to tell your audience that, that I, I hid in the church for 20 years so I could pursue my contemplative life in the public eye and nobody would know that's what I was doing. Um, I was getting paid to pray basically. And, um, so I'm, they shoot me up with a decoag. They, they, they give me an x-ray. They found that I have 100% blockage in my widowmaker artery and that it's real. And they, they shoot me up with a decoagulant. gives me a 3% trickle through. Um, they, were gonna, they offered me morphine because I live an hour and a half from the catheterization lab. And, uh, and so you know, I had to get in the ambulance and drive this hour and a half through traffic. And, um, and he's like, I'll give you morphine. And I'm like, no, I don't want morphine because it makes me sick. I'll be vomiting in the back of the ambulance and having a heart attack. Not a, not a good idea. Um, I'll, I'll, he said, what are you going to do about the pain? I'm going to meditate through the, with the pain. Um, so meditation, you can control. I don't know if, you, if your folks know this, but you can control your physical pain with meditation. If you have a, a localized physical pain and you stare at it with your mind, and your breath, as long as you're in meditation on that spot, you can rise above the pain, no matter what it is. I suppose there's a point at which, well, there's a point at which you can't, when your mind becomes jangled by the pain itself, then you, you, there's no way to do that. But, but there is a, a limit to it. Yeah, so they put me in the- labor that use that technique as well. Um, oh, I've heard, of, I've heard of people using it for labor, for being in labor. I haven't, but I'm glad to hear that because it works for sciatica too. It works for, you know, broken bones. It works for everything. Um, but you have to keep your mind set on it. And as soon as you take your mind off it, you're back in pain again. And so that's the way it works. And this is a biological thing. It's not mystical. It's just mm -hmm. the way the mind works. And so they load me on the gurney and my son shows up because uh, he's living in town for the summer and my wife's there. And he leans in and he squeezes my hand, looks me in the eye and says, I love you, dad. And I can see this agony on his face. I could see this love and this care and this agony. And, and I look and I'm being wheeled to the ambulance and I look up at my wife and she's like kind of looking at me like this kind of smile on her face. And I know that she's thinking that I'm leaving. Mm -hmm. And she, I've been telling her for 
for since our marriage began the, the minute i get an opportunity to leave without killing myself i'm out of here um and oh yeah not yeah it's not been marrying a near-death experiencer is is not an easy thing we live in a different world than everybody else and it's not an easy thing she's she's a saint um and be put, for putting up with my eccentricities and so basically i'm out of here so i'm in the ambulance and i'm on my way to, to portland i live in maine and and i'm not on morphine and I'm meditating in the back of the ambulance and it's a saturday and it's summer traffic and the sirens are going and it's one point i'm so i'm i'm focused in my meditation but in meditation you can hear everything that's going on around you you just don't grasp it you don't pull it into your conscious thought you still hear it so i hear the i hear the paramedic she radios in and she says we're losing him what do you want she's calling into the main medical center um what do we do and i open my eyes and i look up at her and she's got she's got fear on her face and as soon as she sees me looking at her, she goes back to game face because she's a professional and doesn't, you know, so she knows your game. And, um, and I'm, I close my eyes because as soon as I open my eyes, I'm out of meditation. And the elephant that's standing on my chest, you know, I suddenly can feel the elephant. And so now, I, you know, it's too much pain. So I, I go back into my meditation. And as I go back inside myself, I have no more pain and I'm not meditating and I'm not in myself anymore. I'm outside of myself in the tunnel and I'm in the tunnel above myself and the, my angel, this intelligent entity, this orb of, of consciousness comes sweeping down toward me, this being of light communicating to me, um, we love you. It's time to come home, come home with us. We've been waiting for you. Well, you know, it's, it's, and so I'm, I, I start to go, I like connect up with this angel and, and I'm, but this time I'm aware of what's going on. I'm not like what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm going with this. And I thought, wait a minute, let me think about this. Let me make sure everybody's okay. So I turn away from the angel and I look down inside myself. And when I look down inside myself, I see my son's face looking like agony, looking at me. And I know that he's not ready. I like read his, I read his mind and soul. And I know that he's not ready for me to leave. He's ready to leave, like grow up and go off and be on his own. He's in his twenties, but he's not ready for me to leave him. And, um, and I think about my daughter, who's a couple years older, just left a marriage, a husband had gone to Afghanistan, terrible things happened to him over there, and uh, came back a different person, they had a brand new baby, she had just left him. And now so she's on her own with this new baby. And I know my wife's going to be fine. I, she's like expecting me to go. Um, but my kids, they're not really ready for me to go. And so I, I turn back to the angel and it starts to rush back down toward me. And I just turn away and go back into my body again. And I, I should say this, when I, looked, when I looked at my granddaughter who was a year, not even a year old at the time, I, I thought about her growing up without a father. How, who's going to be the male in her life, the older male in her life? And it wasn't gonna be her dad, it had to be me. And so it was really, it was for my son and for my daughter, but it was really for my granddaughter. And, and now she's six. I saw her this morning. I, you know, I, I, she's in my life almost every day. 
um, and she's fabulous. And I'm her, I'm the golden grandpa. They call me Bampa. Um, I'm 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 the like I'm the one who can do no wrong in her life. Um, and so I I went back into my body and I get to the catheterization lab, and the doc's like, he's not on morphine. I'm like, don't give me any morphine. And so they, it, and the surgery doesn't hurt. They put a stent in. And so I'm, I'm conscious through the whole surgery. I can feel them like poking around inside my heart with the, with the, with the orthopedic, uh, the arthroscopic. And, uh, and then they take me to ICU and I'm still not on any painkiller and I meditate until I'm exhausted. And they give me something other than an opiate. I don't know what they gave me, but uh, I finally, after eight hours or 12 hours of exhaustion and surgery, I'm, I fall asleep and then I wake up the next day and I find out I get moved to a regular bed and I find out that the doc at the urgent care center had told my son to say goodbye to me because I was going to die on the way. So what I saw in his face was agony of losing his dad, his last time to say goodbye. And, um, and I had a lot of damage because it was two hours, more than two hours outside the goal, uh, you get one hour in the golden hour before damage starts to happen to the muscle. So I had a lot of damage. I had a long recovery. Uh, my book came out when I was in the hospital. Wow. Uh, Amazon, my publisher, Hampton Roads, um, it was scheduled for release 30 days later, but Amazon had uh, such a back order on it that they released it a month early. So I'm in the, I'm actually in my hospital bed when they release it. And my, I got totally twisted around again. Near-death experience leaves, left me the first time. I'm living non-attached in the world, mm -hmm. not detached from the world, but non-attached in the world and, and has lots of other after effects that are, they're blessings, but they're also curses because, because I'm always, I'm like a balloon. I'm like a balloon that's always floating above reach of everybody. And it's, and, and, and it's, uh, it's, and so the second time I, and I hid it for 20 years because I didn't want to be considered a kook and I worked in religion. I'm not a religious person. I am a meditator and a yogi and I'm, I'm, I, you know, I have a master's in divinity from Yale and mysticism. I studied global mysticism in order to find, uh, language and practices that I could use inside myself to carve my way through striving back to heaven as best as I can while I'm here. And that's how I've lived my life. Um, privately, every day, meditating, doing yoga. And I, you know, as a minister, I was a minister for 20 years and um, 18 years, and nobody questioned me when I was, you know, he's in there meditating. Oh, it's okay, he's a minister. So, so nobody, if I were like an, an architect and I was meditating in the middle of the day, they would have fired me. Um, but the church, so, so I kind of adjusted. I had the, I had other mystical experiences as a result of my near-death experience and my meditative life, which continued to, um, heal me and also give me new understanding of what had happened to me in my NDE, but also additional understanding about um, the nature of reality. And, and then my second near-death experience twisted me pretty seriously. Um, I, in a way that I didn't expect, I, 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 I'd been on, I'd, 
left the church after 18 years and I was in television for 15 years, television and, and a little bit of radio, which is where this mic comes from. I had a radio show in addition to the TV. I had a TV, a daily TV spot on, on a couple of NBC stations um, in Maine telling uh, spiritual devotional stories just before the weather. And after 15 years, in, while I just got out of the hospital, new corporate owners came in and, and bought the station and we're getting phased out. So I got canceled. And so I had this year and a half of this long, slow canceling as we were, we were easing the audience into the idea that we were going away after 90 years. So I had this thing for 15, but it was 90 years old. And so I decided that I was gonna, the book came out, I started touring, I started speaking all over the place, um, national, international speaking, events and publications and all sorts of things started happening. Um, uh, there's a, I'm in a video, I'm in, in a movie on uh, a documentary right now on Amazon Prime and there's a, my book is being made into a, a feature film and all these things started happening. And I decided that I was all in now. As a result of my second death, I'm a hundred percent in. I've got a limited amount of time left. It could be 30 years. But it's but I know that it's the wink of an eye, mm -hmm. um, and so my my and there are and I've discovered in 2015 that there are tens of millions of near death experiencers. I thought I was alone for my whole life. I thought I was alone, and then I found the International Association for Near Death Studies, and I found a peer group, and then I discovered that we're all over the world, and we're in every culture and every language, and we're all coming back with the same message of love. And it doesn't matter whether you're a, a Jew or a Muslim or a Jan or a Sikh or an atheist, it doesn't matter. Um, and maybe we use different metaphorical terms to describe it, but the, the, the love itself that we experienced is the operating system of, it's our new operating system. I have my OS in my, in my computer of my body is love. And, and after my second near-death experience, I decided that I'm all in now. I'm not going to, I, you know, I pretended I passed for 20 years in the church pretending that I was a believer. I am not a believer. Um, I, uh, mythologies are mythologies. They're useful tools, but they are not the thing itself. Um, and I, I, used, I used all of those tools to deepen the path inside myself to aim my, my inner eye at the oneness of being. And and now that I've done that for 40 years, I finally feel like I'm ready. Um, this new second near-death experience, now that I, I feel like I'm prepared to, to finally begin to do the work that I was always meant to do. Um, because when I died, the, the second day after my death, uh, the first day was the day that uh, the first sunrise was the day we got off the mountain. The second sunrise, I heard the voice inside me still, still hear the voice inside me, calling me to speak that which has for which there are no words and so i've spent my life trying to do um trying to channel peace not so much so that i can just fill myself but so that i can fulfill my duty which is to bring as much as i can into the world through this vessel because i i am i i know that i'm not this person i live inside this body peter is my character here but it's not who I am. 
and I, I aim to carve a, carve away enough of Peter to allow enough of my true self in and let that flow through me and let that speak instead of me. So I use lots of words, but, uh, but one of the things I learned in television is, and I kind of did this in the pulpit as well, but particularly in television and radio as well. Um, if I was meditating before I wrote my scripts, I wrote, I wrote, I prepared things. So I prepared these little 240 word stories and then I would read them off the teleprompter. But if I meditated before I wrote them and I meditated before I shot the recording in the studio, I could project the light itself. I could weave the light into the words and I could, I could gather the light inside myself and send it out through my eyes into the lens and out through my throat chakra into the voice, into the, into the microphone. And I, I never told anybody that I was doing this because who's going to believe me, you know? So I just kept my mouth shut about it. And I began to get letters from all sorts of people, um, all sorts of people of all walks of life because my audience was everybody. Um, and the state of all walks of life, saying that they they would there was something about my something about me, something about my words, and something about the way that I made them feel. And I knew that it wasn't me. It's not me. It's this. It's this light that is inside of everyone already. This divine presence sees itself. It recognizes itself when it encounters and encounters itself in another. And if I can make myself small enough, if I can die enough to myself in this life to let enough of this through me, then people see it inside themselves. And once you see it inside yourself, then you, then you begin to see it everywhere. And you realize that, it's, that it is in everything and, and that you are the doorway in. That, that, that the way into the divine self is already inside you and you don't need anybody else. And you only need to look inside. And when you begin to look inside and peel away the self, you then begin to find it in there. And then you begin to see it in everywhere you go. In nature, I'm, I'm very much a nature mystic I, I, because nature speaks the voice of the divine through every single leaf and tree, every root and rill. And it, it, the deeper you go inside yourself, the more that becomes real. And the more time you spend in nature, listening to the divine presence in nature, the more that becomes real inside of you. It's this self-reinforcing system, and we just need to tap into it. Um, and so that's really what I'm after for the rest of my life, is, is to try to teach people how to find this inside themselves. Well, that's actually one of the reasons I'm doing this project, and um, because I do think it's important to share this with people who are receptive. I know there will be people who aren't. But as you said, I also appreciated so much how you said that it isn't all, it is a gift because then suddenly you see that, oh, maybe I don't need to take everything so seriously or be so afraid because now I see that this, like you said in the book, it's a wink of an eye. And when you said that in the book, it actually kind of for a second made me feel kind of depressed, which is weird because <laughs> on one hand, I mean, this is the stuff that brings me alive and that makes me feel so much joy to know that there's even because you know even just through what i've done which is learn mediumship and connecting with the other side i'm starting to feel that too like suddenly i'm like everything that's happening i don't want to be so in the clouds that i'm not present 
in this world. So I can understand that to a smaller degree um, because already I'm starting to feel like I'm sort of like having trouble relating with people, even just having this new knowledge. But I think it's really important that you're saying it, that one of the traumas of having that beautiful awakening, which is to understand that we're just here to learn and that it's all, it is all going to be okay. Because at the end of the day, no matter how we pass, once we're there, it's like, it, it's just like a blip, you know, this is all just a blip. Not that it's not meaningful, but that this isn't the real reality. So, right. but I think it's important that you talk about the trauma of that, because as you said, and I was going to say this too, doing this, you know, work that I'm doing, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who have experienced what you have. But there's this, at least in here, I, don't, I can't speak for all cultures. There's this, um, I think we're really getting there. I think more and more people are open. But there's this idea that it's like woo-woo or, um, you know, we're crazy. And so people are afraid to speak up when really you know what's up. I mean, you know, and, and I think that um, it, there's a reason why you had visitations when you were a child because this was your work. And so for you to hold that in, you're, you're really going against your, your own soul and what I think, you know, God, the universe, whatever you call it, wants for you, because that's why they were saying, hey, we're here, we're just letting you know we're here. And it's the same reason why when I was a kid, I saw a big blue orb appear over my body when I turned mm. off the light when I was 14, mm. or around that age. And later in my life, I asked, um, I worked in casting and I was working on a paranormal show thing and talked to this psychic medium. And I said, what was this thing that appeared to me? It just was a big blue orb that just zipped across. I've talked about it before my room and it hovered and it looked at me and it kind of just like, it was as bright as it was this bright. It was brighter than this. It was, it was glowing. And I saw it with my naked eye. I was completely sober. I, I mean, I might've been 13, 14. And she said, oh, that was angels coming to to show you that they were real so that later in life you were meant to do some kind of work. And at this time I had no, I did not even have any, I, I was interested, but I didn't know that I had the capability to learn. Um, and they said that was them showing themselves to say, so later on when you were like, is this real? You'd be like, nope, I know it is. And that, it sounds like you are doing the work that you were, you were meant to do because that's why they kept showing themselves to you to say kind of, this is your job in this lifetime and you are doing it so well. Like I said, your book is beautifully written. Everything you just said, every time I think, oh, every interview I do, I'm like, this is my favorite. This is my favorite. <laughs> and now I'm here going, this one's my favorite because mm -hmm. everything you said resonated so much. And I think it will with so many people. It will also open up some minds and also it will be comforting to other people and give other people the courage to say this happened to me too. That's the and, thing. Right and there. nowhere to go for support because it is hard to live mm -hmm. in the world after you've been yeah. to the other side. How do you adapt to, like we said, the tangible? Mm -hmm. um, and how do you, and you have to yourself? You have to kind of shrink yourself. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think it's beautiful. And I appreciate so much you sharing your time and energy and all of the wisdom. I feel like, you know, if I just let the camera roll for five hours, I just, I could just listen to you, yeah. listen to you. <laughs> but in the interest of, you know, uh, people not going off to do other things, I think that's a, a I'd love to just end with some, um, just some words of wisdom that you have for people. I think anything that comes to mind that um, you just really want people to know 
a couple of things. One, it came to mind as we were talking that uh, I heard a quote this week, before enlightenment, wash the dishes. After enlightenment, wash the dishes. So it doesn't, it, and the other one I heard this week was, um, the good news is that you don't need perfection in order to have an awakening. And the bad news is awakening doesn't lead to perfection. I, that sounds about right. But yep. the but the the what I really want to say is is love really is the treasure. Love is the treasure of life. Love is the treasure of heaven. It's the it's the the giving away of love that gets you to gain it, and the sharing of it changes everything. It changes everything. If you aim your heart at the divine, with all of your heart, soul, and mind, for the whole of your life, on a regular basis, daily, a little bit every day your heart will expand your heart will expand and your self interest will shrink and you'll live a better life because because the light isn't ours love isn't ours there's this great storehouse of love it's an inexhaustible supply and if you open yourself to it the more you open the more you get to give away the more capacity you have. It's beautiful. You literally just almost <laughs> made me cry for the first time ever while I was doing this. Um, so thank you so much. I really, that really moved me a lot. And um, I just can't thank you enough for, for doing the work that you're doing. Um, I would like you to share your website. I'm also going to link it below, but I know it has all of your information because you do offer counseling. You do have your, uh, where to find your books. And I know that you do some Zoom um, meetups too with a, you know, a very affordable donation amount um, you know, suggested. And um, so please let us know what your website is so people can learn more about you and be involved. It's uh, peterpanagor.love. PeterPanagor.love. <laughs> I know it's crazy. It's available. Uh, PeterPanagor.love, and I and I have a YouTube show called Not Church on Sunday mornings. It's no doctrine, no dogma, no BS, just mysticism. And I, I teach meditation. Uh, just started my first workshop with the New Earth Organization Network, Neo Network, just this past week, teaching a form of Kriya Yoga, which is a uh, out of Paramahansa Yogananda Self-Realization Fellowship School. I am not uh, officially ordained by them, but I've been practicing for 40 years. Um, long story, beautiful story, but a long story. But I, I, waited, I waited until others saw that it was working before I decided to teach, and now I've begun to teach. Fantastic, and guess who's gonna be at your not church? <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely I'm definitely there um, thank you so much again Peter Panagor for being with me today and for sharing all this beautiful wisdom with our viewers it really means a lot thanks for having me Shannon my absolute Peace. pleasure you too